This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Hollywood Wolfpack with Kaya Alexander. Featuring in-depth interviews and insights with professionals in the entertainment business. Get everything you need to navigate your above-the-line career right here. This podcast is often recorded live in front of Kaya students in the Entertainment Business School. You can find out more at entertainmentbusinessschool.com. Hollywood Wolfpack is the new face of entertainment business wisdom. Enjoy the show. Hi and welcome. I am Kaya Alexander, your host of the show here today with my special guest who is an artist, writer, director, and basically the man who I want to be when I grow up, Andrew Levitas. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you. I am a big fan of your work, um, having discovered you through the film that you directed starring Johnny Depp, Minamata. How did this project find you? How did you find this project? Sure. So it, it it's one of those weird ones that um, goes back to the, you know, formative years of, of being a person even before realizing I was going to someday grow up to be an artist. And I had fallen in love um, with Eugene Smith's work. I must have been 10 or 12 or 14 years old. And I didn't really know what I was looking at. And I didn't really know why I, I loved the work. Right. Um, at the time, you know, I remember seeing some of it, some of the Minamata work, but, but other work too from Pacific theater. And, um, and seeing it and feeling strange and seeing, I, I mean, I vividly remember at that age, looking at, at these images, uh, of course, not knowing that it was Eugene Smith specifically, but somehow being presented with this work and, um, and, and realizing I was looking at pictures that I shouldn't like, right. That the subject matter of the pictures were upsetting, right. Uh, a GI holding a baby in its arms, covered in blood and dirt, um, a handicapped child in a bathtub, you know, these sort of things, things that I shouldn't have, have felt connected to or felt sort of a gravitate, a gravitational pull with. And they should have made me feel bad because of what, at least I thought they should have made me feel bad because that's what I was seeing, but they didn't. And it always stuck with me and I was always fascinated by that. And so I started to seek out more and more images and try to understand wasn't as thoughtful as it sounds today, but at that age, but looking for work that whether it was paintings, photography, a lot of photography, um, or even films that I had access to at that age that spoke to me, but in a way I didn't expect, right? Of course, when I got older and started to understand what I was looking at, it was because there was both sides of that same conversation there, right? You were seeing the best of humanity and the worst of humanity in the same image, right? And so I, as a person that I am today or then, keyed in on the best of 
what humanity can be and what the best we can offer each other. And, and I always just stayed fascinated with that idea. And so my work, whether it was my sculpture work, books of poetry I've written, films I've wanted to make, it always played with this idea of showing the best in the moments of the worst, right? Um, and and how expressive that could be and, and all that and, and trying to find that thing. So Eugene Smith, his work was with me for, you know, since I was, since I was a little boy. And then the minimum, and then sep- on another part of my life, I progressed and and got deeper and deeper into wildlife conservation and the environmental, various environmental groups um, and and learnings, I guess. Um, and I suddenly became the person when I would sit on panels to talk, where I'd, I'd sit on a panel and it would be me and a bunch of much more impressive environmentalists or conservationists. And we sit on these panels and you'd have 500 people in the audience and then ask questions and all of the other panelists, the scientists, these guys would just be depressing, depressing, doom and gloom. Everything was terrible. The world is over. We got nothing to do. And you'd see the audience's faces just sort of drop and feel like, well, I mean, if there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can do. And I was always the one kind of talking about the best things and and here are the changes. And you know, I've been teaching at a university for a decade. And, you know, in the in the first year I was there, every kid came in with a, you know, I teach young, like college kids, you know, every kid would come into class with a, with a plastic bottle, you know, decade later, there's not a plastic bottle on campus. Um, you know, things like that, little bits and pieces, you know, if my kids ever saw me do certain things, drink out of a plastic straw, or do things, they would lose their mind at me, my kids are four and seven, you know, like, the there there is real progress anyway so i'm always talking about that and trying to be telling stories that are uplifting stories of success stories of how we can do better and so i became aware of the minamata story because it actually is post the time of the film it is an example of great success globally right so the world came together because of this work but the world came together the minamata convention is an incredible success we're still pushing, we're still fighting, but around the world, people suddenly took took notice and you know did something. So I was hyper aware of that. I was hyper aware of Eugene Smith. And then suddenly I get a phone call that says, hey, um, we think you're the perfect person to shepherd this project um, on one side. On the other side, you know, there's a really good chance that Johnny Depp wants to do this. And you two are like the only people that could, could crack this code. So- <laughs> Like, okay, I mean, sounds fun, but you know, you're speaking my language. I don't know if Johnny's the right guy, but I'm happy to do it. Um, and this was before anything crazy had happened in Johnny's life. So I got an airplane. I was living in London at the time, but I got an airplane, went to LA for what was meant to be about a 45-minute meeting. And for like 12 hours or something, we talked about everything except for the movie. <laughs> we talked about photography. We talked about the purpose of making cinema. We talked about literature. We talked about the environment. We talked about how to make something and what the goals of making a film like this would be, which was to inspire, to uplift, to educate, to move policy, but certainly to touch people in a way that would make them walk out of a movie theater and go, I actually have a voice I can use. I can link arms with my friends. I have power within me and I can be the change. And you know, we agreed on all those things and literally never talked, didn't spend one second on a script, story, any of it, just what the objectives were. 
and that was it. And then, you know, we spoke every day for, you know, a couple of years until we finished the film. For everybody listening who hasn't yet seen the film, it is a movie about one of the world's greatest environmental disasters. So would you say a few words about that and the actual subject matter and how it did change policy? I'm so curious to know. Sure. So uh, uh, there's a lot to unpack in terms of the history of, of Minamata and Minamata disease and the poisoning, but the sort of broad strokes are... Um, a factory called the Chiso Corporation was poisoning the bay or was putting methyl mercury, methyl mercury, uh, pumping methyl mercury into the Bay of Minamata. Uh, they realized that there was a problem um, with the fish that was that were being caught in the bay and people were eating them in this small coastal town. So they essentially uh, were buying up the fish and not allowing for the fish to make it to market so that the general public wasn't getting sick. But of course, they never admitted that there was this problem and it was all done behind the scenes. And so the general public uh, was somewhat insulated against this outside of Minamata, but all the fishing community in Minamata were certainly eating all of the fish. Was this and the 60s? This was like the 60s? So one of the heartbreaking things about this was that this went on for about 50 years. Mm. Um and 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 continues to go on today. Not the mercury being in the water, but the denials, the sort of corporate and political cover up that is an ongoing one, denying the existence of certain victims, design, denying the existence of wrongdoing, all of this stuff. Um, and so, what happened, of course, is that the women, um, pregnant women, were eating the fish, and the placenta you know, pulls things like mercury out of it and pumps it into the children. So aside from older, from, you know, uh, grownups um, starting to have various symptoms, children were being born horribly deformed um, and unable to, to fend for themselves. And the government and the corporation denied it for decades. Um, and there've been multiple lawsuits and, and all this stuff, and they, they just denied it. And so you know, when we went to Minamata to meet with some of the patients, um, the, the, the ones that were still alive and then their families, you know, they have been through a lot. They have been through a lot of, of lawsuits, um, a lot of protesting, a lot of trying to be heard, trying to be seen, breaking through normal societal boundaries and cultural boundaries that they were bound for. You know, this stuff happens in, you know, in America, you know, we burn down the house, but in Japan, it's a bit of a different, different thing. Um, very difficult. And there was a lot of shame and shaming um, of these folks, even though it had nothing to, to do with it. It wasn't their fault. They were victims. Um, and so it was delicate to rip that Band-Aid off. Um, but one of the most inspiring sort of calls to arms that I've ever heard uh, was sitting in a room with some of these folks who have been through more than anyone ever should go through. Um and having them basically say, like, tell our story, um, we're willing to go through this again, but it's not going to change our life, but we want to make sure there aren't more Minamatas in the world. And it was, you know, one of those things that you really, you take on. And I shared with every crew member, every cast member that came on board after that. So they all understood, you know, what was at stake. There's a lot of pain that was going to be felt by folks just seeing it all over again, feeling it again. Um, that said, one of the hopes but 
long shots was seeing policy and awareness change primarily in Japan from from this film. And, you know, amazingly and wonderfully, um, the film performed extremely well in Japan. Uh, When we were making the film, every Japanese distributor rejected taking on the film. Once they saw the film, every Japanese distributor fought for the rights to buy the film. Oh my God, I have chills. It was, it was amazing. And, and, you know, they just didn't believe we would do it right, that we would do it with, um, not just in terms of the quality of the film, but take a real view uh, that we would speak to a Japanese audience, right? That we would take the time to think about what does a Japanese audience expect to see? How can we present it? And how can we do it in a way that they would absorb it? And, you know, the film was in theaters for gosh, almost a year, uh, constant screenings in theaters doing incredibly well a lot of articles everywhere from you know political pages to the more gossipy type pages hollywood type pages um, in japan and it it has changed the lives of these patients um there is almost universal knowledge of minamata disease now in japan there's almost universal knowledge that there are people struggling to be heard and seen um and there's a lot more support that's that's going that way. And you know, most of the country uh, that has denied the existence of this event in the first place um, has had to really sit up and take notice. And you know, textbooks have been changed in Japan so that children are learning about this history. Um, and the only thing worse than having your life stolen from you is having it not exist. And so. Um, you know, these, these people are really being remembered or being celebrated. So it's really fantastic. This episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. That's so fantastic. I'm really interested in the social impact space. And so often the films that are social impact are docs. And here you've achieved this with this scripted film um, that has really opened hearts. I mean, I came across your movie because I was diagnosed with mercury poisoning and I was talking about it on Twitter um, and became friends with David Kessler, who's like, you really need to see Minamata. Um, And I since have been treated for it and all the rest and, you know, pulled the mercury out of my system. But there was a, it was pretty harrowing there for a while. And then you realize, you know, we, we all share the same earth and we're being exposed to these things. And it's really important to have these conversations because of course they're affecting us, you know, as, as human beings are affecting the animals. And there's a lot there that needs to be done. What, what I really loved about the film, it was so touching. I mean, you know, really made me cry. Um, cause it was so moving this, the, the deep, true story of his life, of what he was going through, his pain, but also putting himself on the line 
for these people. And it was so beautifully filmed. And every single shot was just so gorgeous that it was just this moving portrait. It was just a beautiful, beautiful movie. I, I would love to know what has come of that social impact work in this film for both yourself, like what future projects are you working on? And also what came of this film? And, you know, were there any policies changed, you know, that came out of the film? Sure. So, yeah, like I have said, um, a lot changed in Japan and is um, continuing to, right? The, 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 the biggest hurdle that you have as... Um, that you have in terms of changing policy in the mod in, in the modern era is um is is lack of awareness and so you know stories like this that are told from an honest lens that um that you know you mentioned the beauty of the photography so we felt a responsibility to 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 present to present the film in a way that was both reflective of a great artist like Eugene Smith. So, you know, a big part of the film is from his point of view and it has to feel of that quality. So as artists ourselves, we're going, well, we have to step up our game. How would this look? How should this feel? Why should it feel this way? And how does that, how does that play in and support our story? But also um, having an interest in what the film did not as a film, but what the did, film did as a as a piece of work that's out there speaking to people. Um, if you if you don't find a way to make people lean in, and instead people have to turn away, you lose the impact. Right. Our goal is to say this is a beautiful thing. Come look. The closer you look, the closer you come the more your heart will open, the more you will see yourself, the more you will see your neighbor, the more you will see your, you know, uh, your cousins and, 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 and you feel part of this, this same community, right? Because there are a thousand different environmental issues happening at the same time, but they're all being compartmentalized and localized in terms of how they're, they're talked about, um, which marginalizes all of us instead of saying, okay, we're the millions together. We're the, we're the billions together. Like we have the power to do something about this. Um, and so, you know, there was a, I hate, I feel bad to, to, excuse the language, to shit on the, um, on the, uh, uh, what do they call, uh, the ASPCA. I love the ASPCA. Okay. But they had a commercial when I was young, younger, um, that has beautiful Sarah McLaughlin song on it. Right? Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and they must have been really well financed. And so they had, or, you know, thousands of this commercial just playing all the time. Every time the we watch arms of the angel, absolutely. The arms of the angel was on and on and on and on. By the time, you know, you'd seen this commercial and, and the commercial for those of you who, who don't know it was images. So we'd start with, you know, in the arms of the angels, beautiful song. And then the images were tortured animals, tortured dogs, oh, tortured yeah. pup, things like, I mean, just horrific, horrific images. And by the fifth time, by the 10th time, you know, you could hear like a single note from that song and you would either get up to go to the bathroom, just turn away, do something else, change the channel. You couldn't engage. You wouldn't look at it. It was too much, right? There was no beauty in it. 
There was no elegance in it. It wasn't trying to draw you in. It was trying to shock you. These are things that happen. And I think what we've learned is that shocking people in that way, it just makes you turn away, mm-hmm. right? We had something to say, the same thing that Gene Smith said, which was that the world is beautiful. Humanity is beautiful. There's so much here to look at and engage with, right? Uh, a child that's been horribly um, disfigured and had this horrible life um, being being handicapped in this way, but the love between her and her mother and the love between her mother and her can make your heart explode and, and shows you the goodness. And so we needed to, to, to create the film, not just in terms of the narrative, but how we presented it visually to the audience and also musically to the audience that made you go, not go, oh, I, I but actually go, oh, wow, I, I want to see more. This is, that's a beautiful picture. That's a beautiful thing. And I can see the beauty and, and reflect and, and have a conversation with it. I love that. It goes back to Plato, you know, the good, the true and the beautiful and good can be really hard to pin down. And truth is like, how do we even talk about truth? But then beauty is the doorway in because it it does open us up. It does open our hearts and call us to lean in. Like you were saying, I love the way that you put that. As I was looking up your work online, I haven't had the pleasure of going to one of your shows. I hope to at some point, um, but I was looking up your metal work, um, your photography. You have clearly a deep relationship with beauty. What is that like for you? Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't, you know, it's, it's, I guess like you develop an aesthetic. I never really work towards an aesthetic for the sake of, of, of an aesthetic. I guess I do like making beautiful objects. And I guess in a way, you know, like I was talking about earlier with Smith's work, in a way, I guess I can hide almost Trojan horse, more complex ideas that I actually care about um, inside of more beautiful packaging, right? So my bigger sculptures, um, I can add all this meaning. I could add all these ideas. I could add some pretty harrowing stuff into it. Um, but when you look at it, it's still beautiful. I think it it draws you in. I, I just, I think we all are just naturally attracted to things that are, are beautiful. They don't have to be traditionally beautiful. Um, but, and so it's probably a defense mechanism at this point, <laughs> you know, just like make pretty things that people will look and then I can, you know, that. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta get the medicine down with a spoonful of sugar. That's it. I love that. So what's next for you? What, where's your focus? Sure. So I've got a bunch of uh, bunch of of uh, of uh, sculptural projects I'm working on, almost entirely about uh, wildlife conservation um, and sort of the connective piece. The, the last, for those that won't have seen that work, um, the last exhibition was about uh, industrial pollution specifically, right? So big big sculptures that speak, big beautiful sculptures that <laughs> speak to. Um, those sorts of of ideas, right? Um, the the stuff I'm working around working on now really uh, is trying to to focus and narrow in on the idea that um, wildlife conservation is very much connected to human conservation, right? Like 
saving us, saving animals is saving us and saving the communities around them and how we're, we're connected, um, both on, in, in some, uh, ways that are more well-reported, like, you know, the fact that terrorist groups are responsible, the same terrorist groups that might be trying to blow you up, uh, are the same terrorist groups that are that are poaching or are oftentimes poaching uh, rhino or elephant or lion or deeply involved in the illegal wildlife trade, um, but also on smaller things, the way that wildlife impacts an ecosystem and how that traces its way to you. So trying to pack all this information into into sculptural series, and so that's that's the really fun part. And then teaching uh, at, at at NYU, um, and then there's quite a few films that I've I've written and been been working on um to pull together and i think you know no announcements today but we're we're i think we're very likely to be uh to be back at work very soon oh i love that that so, i've been saying so what are you teaching at nyu uh, i've been teaching uh for over a decade now i teach a course called the artist's mind um about creativity um about specificity about um creating process to uh, replicate good work, replicate your own good work, right? So the theory behind it is that so many uh, so many artists across all disciplines will, you know, maybe make one great work um, or the, you know, the, the first great work or the second great work. And then it's quite hard to keep the, keep the tank full to keep yourself, um, engaged and fresh uh and so i've built a process that i've built over the you know 30 years for myself um which sort of walks you through how to build or some examples of how to build your own process right so if you're a filmmaker here are the seven other things that have nothing to do with film that you can do while you're writing a screenplay or these are ways to get deeper into your projects if you're a architect i mean it's, it's open to all creatives i curate the class but um if you're an architect and you're you know um constantly creating but you need new ways to to view the world sort of how to how to package that for oneself to just go okay if i do these steps i, I can get there um you know it doesn't make you better just makes you uh i guess more efficient so many of my listeners are above the line creatives, like writers and directors like yourself. So what tips do you have for them coming out of process and teaching process? I think the process is more, um, has a bigger role to play than people give it credit for in artistic community. Um, there's a lot of this freestyling, right? Like just, oh, I'll do it this way. I'll do it that way. Like, I don't know this project, right? For me, the more prepared you are, the more, you know, there's a finite amount of time for everything. And so the more prepared you are, whether it's by, you know, uh, the process in which you write, the process in which you create, or the process in which you prep for a film, um, the more time you'll have for free thinking, the more time you'll have for opportunity, the more time you'll have to make different connections and different, um, you know, bridge different gaps and, and have those eureka moments when you're just having to focus on getting through the, you know, the slog while staring at a computer screen as you're writing, it's, it's quite difficult to make magic. Um, and so, I, and I also, in my course, I have quite a few uh, friends come in and everybody has a different process. All the guys I know that are, you know, men, women, whatever, that are uh, 
consistently successful and happy, right? It's the ones that have created process for themselves. And they're all different. I have one friend that sits, uh, there's some jetway, some uh, uh, air path or whatever by LAX um, in LA where the, where the planes are very low. I guess they're just taking off or just landing. He sits there on the hood of his car staring up. And that's part of his processing knows that it clears him in a certain way and allows for certain thinking. We all have something different. I paint, you know, I paint ideas that are in my films, right? So I'll paint, you know, I will step away from my screenplay and I'll sit down and go, okay, what is what, what do I want my audience to feel when they walk out of a movie theater? Right. Well, it's one thing to think about. It's another thing to have to activate it and action it. So I'll, you know, go into my studio and, and paint whatever that idea is and then go back and read my screenplay and say, okay, well, at the end of this film, like, I don't think they're going to connect that same emotion I I, I really refined over here is going to, to play out here. Um, where I write a lot of poetry about, you know, from the perspective of my different um, characters, you know, it's just an easier way to get inside their head, right? Write it in their voice. Well, you got to be honest about what their voice sounds like or else it's your poetry. Um, so these, these sorts of things. And, um, so I highly recommend everyone find your own path, but, but put your, figure out a way to, to, to replicate that, that thing. Cause it's takes too long otherwise. Oh my God. I love that. I hope you write a book about it yeah. <laughs> all your, in all your spare time. Oh, come on, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, I, I, got, I get it. I'm a, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, for the kitties, yeah. I'm a surfer and there's so much for me of that. Um, the, it's like a giant comma in my whole thinking process where it can go out there and you, you, know, you can't bring a cell phone. You can't, there's nothing you can bring out there except your relationship with everything beyond the sand. Um, the dolphins that come, the mist that comes and goes, the, the beautiful landscape that is shifting, that is the sea. Uh, and it's, Sometimes even if I don't catch many waves, it's just being out there and that reset and the quiet of it is it's just such a quiet space to then come back in with fresh ideas and fresh energy. I don't know anywhere else to go to find that kind of recharge, but it sounds like for you, it's going to painting, it's going to poetry, it's going to dip your brush in another arena that's going to then feed into what you're doing. Yeah, so it's active. So the idea... What I try to uh, advocate for is is actively moving your work forward while doing things that are outside of a final product, right? So, um, writing short story about a character, you know, um, writing poetry from the perspective of this person, doing a photo essay, storyboarding your movie, but doing it with photography as you walk around your hometown, right? Um, things that then allow you to move your work forward, but you don't have to sit smashing your face against your computer and wanting to kill yourself all day, right? It's just a different experience. Um, and it's rewarding in itself. It's interesting you mentioned surfing. I always um, I always ask my students, 
you know, does anyone here surf? And you know, I teach in New York, so there's not as many that that will surf. Do you ski or any rock climbers? But using the surfing as an example, right? I think the best training that artists can do in their own time working on that they could spend their own time working on to progress and find shortcuts into their work and find ways to find more specificity, more clarity in their work and more of an enjoyable experience uh, being an artist, um, which is, you know, we have to be responsible to ourselves. We have to feel good um, is I, I, I asked my students, um, you know, if you're a surfer, if you're not a surfer, you drive down Pacific Coast Highway and you see waves and you turn to your friend in the car and you're like, wow, look at those big waves. Or, oh, there's no waves today. That's about it, right? That's that's the limitation of the not, of the information that you're taking out of the water. But if you're a surfer and you're driving down Pacific Coast Highway, you're immediately going, look at that left. Oh, wow, look at the right there. Oh, wow, I see what I would do with this. Look how long that is. I Whatever the different details and knowledge that you can that you can, you know, information you can suck out of it becomes a much richer experience, right? Absolutely. If you're a rock climber, you look at a rock face. I drive by, I'm not a rock climber, right? Drive, you drive by a rock face, you're like, wow, it's a big cliff. That's the end of it, right? If you're a rock climber, you look at it, you see how you would go, oh, you could climb this. Oh, the texture of the rock is such, you know, all this stuff. And the idea as an artist is to look at everything and notice everything and see how much information you could be pulling out of all of it, Right whether it's the table you're sat at, whether it's the computer screen you're looking at, whether it's the people you're looking at, whether it's the texture of the light and be training yourself to just constantly be absorbing all of this. Um, that's something you can do walking around and you'd be amazed how just going from, you know, sort of like a baseball player sits in a, in a batting cage, hits a thousand, bat, hit, you know, hits a million balls just so that the, when they get actually, you know, uh, uh, pitched a ball in a game, they're ready to hit it because they practice so much. You'll find that you can do this enough and be conscious of it to the point where you just become, un it becomes an unconscious reflex to you. And you're just constantly taking it in. And then you sit down to do your work and you're shocked at the knowledge that you have. You're shocked at the, at the base and wealth of information about the way people's eyes twinkle at a certain moment, the smell of something that's you never even thought would have a smell, you know, all this stuff, it's there for you. And it becomes the supporting foundational pieces of any work you do, whether you're a sculptor, a painter, a filmmaker, um, you know, or just, you know, a, a lover, whatever. I love that. It's the art and practice of paying attention. And it's something that we're completely losing, you know, with kids with their eyes buried in the phone and everything else. I was walking my dog yesterday at the dog park. And I, it's something that I really love is just to be with him in that moment with when now what's happening in spring with, oh, these flowers are in bloom now. And oh, there's a hawk, you know, way up on that tree. And like, it puts me into you know, relationship with everything just in that moment, walking with him and walking past so many people who are with their dogs, who are, you know, they have the earphones in and then their eyes are buried in the phone. And I'm just looking at him going like, okay, you missed the hawk. You missed the crow. You missed your dog having this great moment. Like they're just, there's so much that is being missed because uh, of this addiction to technology. And I, I love that. That's a huge part of your process is simply immersing yourself and paying attention to the to the moments and you know, going back to the surfing you were talking about being able to read the water that's relationship when you have a relationship with an element when you have a relationship with the nature around you 
you can you can read it and you start to develop that. It's taken me years, you know, and I work with a coach too, and he can see stuff I can't see. And we get out there and he goes, well, you don't have to see it. You just understand it. And he's talking about, you know, the shape of the reef under the water that he's gotten to know for 20 years that I don't know yet because I haven't surfed that spot enough. And he knows that that swell direction is going to hit that reef in that way. And he, so he's just in this, you know, long-term time relationship also yeah. with these elements that inform it. It's, I just find all that stuff really fascinating. I wish I liked my process, Andrew. <laughs> I don't like my you process. You got to change it. But yeah. you know, one of the reasons why is it just takes me forever to do anything. I'm also a novelist and you know, every book wants to uh, have 10 years you know, to be written. And my, unfortunately, my screenwriting is the same way. It's just like I'm like a 3D printer. I just go back and forth and back and forth. But there's a discovery that just feels alive until it doesn't anymore when I know it's done. But yeah, no, it takes forever. Well, you got to find ways to make it more fun. That's the key. <laughs> but enjoy this. Every year I have... Every time I speak to young people, especially in my class, um, I always get asked the same question, which is like, do, do you have to be miserable to be successful as an artist? Do you have to um, go through difficult things to be successful as an artist? And I always find it remarkable that um, that this is like an ongoing thing that people think. And, and to me, it's the opposite, right? It's, it's absolutely the opposite. Your work will be better when you feel nourished, enriched, supported, um, and excited to be there. Um, excited to do it. It's, uh, you know, we get to, as artists, we get to basically be our own therapists. Um, and the better you get at it, the happier you feel. So it's kind of great all around. I love that. And I know that you're a family man too. So um, does your relationship with your family feed your work? Yeah. I mean, I, I think everything feeds, feeds the work. I, you know, I'm, I'm getting to have some fun times now because my daughter, who's seven, seven and a half, um, we've been going out and making films on the Bolex. I've got a couple of old Bolexes. Um, and so that's quite fun to play around, teach her some of the things that stopped being happy accidents for me, you know, light leaks and things like this, that now you see it, you're like, oh shit, this is not what I was going for. You know, like I have a more clear view on what it is, but for her, you get some film developed and all this other stuff is on it and it's magical and it's quite exciting to, to do that. And then, you know, I love watching um, some of these films again, where I get to watch them. You know, I watched ET recently with my four-year-old and my seven-year-old and my four-year-old was uninterested after a few minutes and he left the room. My seven-year-old sat there watching this film and it was two hours of amazingness for me because I just sat watching her and a, I, you know, at this point, I know everything that's happening in this film. You're hearing the sound. I'm seeing her, seeing her eyes like sparkle and glow when she's excited about something and then sad and scared. And it was amazing. It was amazing. So it, it, it inspires me to do more. Um, but also the pressure is different, you know, when you have a family, you feel, um, you feel, I think more of an obligation to, to having something to say and to saying it and to try to be a positive force in some way in the world. But you also realize that you, know, you have limited time on this earth and, and you got to be very careful about how you spend it. So. 
And also you have the support. And I don't know that every artist has that, but I, especially being in the film business, um, which I've been couched in for about 20 years now, I really do see a lot of success come from having family, having support. It's so much harder to be an artist and find your own enactment of your vision without that kind of support. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, it, it makes sense. I think I think you have to have an engaged life or you can't make good art. So whether that engagement is surfing all the time, living in your brain, reading and you know having a nose in a book, whatever it might be, you know, you got to be doing things you love um, because the only way to find out the things you want to talk about um, is to be exploring the world and engage in the world. So, um, you know, the more relationships you have with, with different kinds of people, including your own children and your own parents and other friends and, you know, romantic relationships, um, the easier it is to, to start learning what other perspectives feel like, you know, um, part of the anecdote of, of, of looking at my daughter watching the film is, seeing, understanding what it is to be a, a seven-year-old girl, seeing a real movie like that for the first time, right? And what what she's seeing, what she's reacting to. You know, there's often these, these um, scarier films. They're not really scary, but they have some scarier elements that the kids don't notice. Or you go to, I took my kids to The Lion King, right? On Broadway and uh, actually in the West End. And, you know, you've got these actors with, like lion heads on them. Okay. Their face is right there. The head is here. Your children don't see the humans. It's amazing. Well, I just want to ask what you did with your pandemic. Were you somebody who could get all creative or did it stop you? How did you, what happened for you in the pandemic? So, uh, I wrote an opera. I'm not and- surprised. <laughs> so it sounds ridiculous to say it. I had no business writing an opera. I'm married to a classical singer, and um, and uh, we were out in the woods, staying somewhere. And um, my wife did uh, felt really res- like a responsibility to the public, and so um, she did. I think I don't want to under uh, say less than the right number, but at least thirty um like free online concerts which like millions of people watched um it was like a saturday night thing uh having a having a cocktail and 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 singing uh, a bunch of arias and, and things like that our kids got involved with the not on camera and uh every now and again when she needed a a male voice i butchered the singing but you know so i did the best i could uh and yeah and so we were we were uh we were doing that. And one of my foundations that I work closely with, um, the wilderness foundation, which is all over Africa, but primarily at this point we were working in, uh, in South Africa and, uh, you know, was how to get people fed, right. How to get people fed and looked after because if they're not, then they don't have any choice, but to go out and kill animals for bushmeat. So, um, they're really working on that and just trying to be as helpful to the you know, world and our community as we could be. Um, so, you know, 
My, my students all want you to come back and teach a workshop. Everybody wants to learn from you. <laughs> Very inspiring. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Wolfpack. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please help our pack grow by sharing Hollywood Wolfpack with your friends and colleagues. Give us a rating and write us a review. Kaya loves hearing from you and reads them all. For more on Kaya and the Entertainment Business School, visit entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Until next week, remember, the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack.